Today's dialogue is with Thomas Bjorkman, a remarkable Swedish entrepreneur, banker, philosopher, author, philanthropist, and the creator of multiple organizations dedicated to understanding, healing, and maturing our societies and our world. Our wide-ranging discussion covers topics such as psychological development and cultural evolution, collective crises we face, and ways in which we might better understand, heal, and grow beyond them the untapped possibilities of educational systems which are dedicated to fostering not just factual learning, but also psychological well-being and maturation. And the remarkable example of the Nordic countries, which over a century ago instituted schooling committed to fostering mature, thoughtful, and contributory citizens, citizens who went on to build the Nordic countries into some of the world's most prosperous and livable parts of today's world. I think you'll enjoy, be stimulated, and inspired by this wonderful man, Thomas Bjorkman, and his fountain of ideas. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. My name is John Dupuy. This is my brother and colleague and friend, Douglas Prater, Dr. Roger Walsh, and direct from Sweden via London, Tomas Björkman. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. It's a double delight for me, both having a chance to interview you, but also having known of you and your work for some years through the many people you've influenced, the people I've read, some of the most influential books I've read, I know who have been inspired by you and your work. Now you have just come out with your most recent book, The World We Create, and that was the inspiration for the invitation to plus the factor in California to... And I should uh, say thank you for having me on your channel. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure. You have so many roles, this is going to be a hard introduction to do, but let me, let me mention some of them. You've been a businessman, an entrepreneur, You've founded multiple organizations. You have your own Oak Island Foundation in Sweden. There's the Perspectiva Institute in London. There's the Emerge Network online and uh, quite a variety of others. So you've, you've really touched a number, a large number of people through multiple organizations. But then in addition, you've been a philosopher and an author. You wrote the very influential book, The The Nordic Secret, looking at the remarkable transformation of the Nordic countries through a deliberate focus on cultivation of the psychological, spiritual well-being of the community. And now, most recently, you've written, written the book, The World We Create, looking at the, first off, giving a very big evolutionary perspective on where we are at the moment, where we find ourselves as both individuals and a society and as a planet. But looking at what I think is your unique contribution and a contribution which you've inspired and supported in a number of people, and that is looking specifically at the importance of cultivating psychological maturation, both individually and collectively and institutionalizing it in our political and social Mm. system, and seeing that as a crucial contribution to our well-being and even the survival of our planet. So that feels like the cutting edge of your particular thinking and contributions. Have I got that right? Yeah, I I think you're very, very right. Uh, When I left business, left the banking world a little bit more than 10 years ago now, and and, uh, set up my foundation in... uh, Sweden, the Ekshärit Foundation, the Oak Island Foundation. The purpose was really to investigate the relationship between our own personal inner development and societal change. So that relationship was my starting point. And the reason why I wanted to do that and why I was curious about that really came from my business experience and having 
started a run and run a number of organizations. I was the chairman of a banking group in Scandinavia in the beginning of 2000s, selling my banking business and then starting my foundation in 2008. And from my business years, I learned that one of the most important aspects of a good manager, a good business manager, is really some sort of inner maturation. And that came quite clear to me through uh, practical working in business, but also talking to business and leadership development consultants. They really told me that this inner maturity that I was looking for in, in managers is something that they could help cultivate in people. And I have seen how that has been successfully over a long time cultivated in people in, in my organization. But I was quite surprised that if we in business have an understanding for the importance of lifelong inner maturation or inner consciousness development or our ability to see and hold the world in greater complexity and depth and perhaps even with more compassion. If that is important in business, why do we not at all talk about that in society? And the importance for all of us to look at and support our lifelong inner maturity during our lives. So that, that got me very, uh, very interested in, in that particular aspect. And then the, the other business aspect was perhaps that also I learned from uh, organizational consultants the importance of corporate culture. And there were even consultants saying that if, if we at the board level of, of the banking group, if we manage to get the organizational culture right, then most problems would sort themselves out. But if we didn't get the corporate culture right, it, it wouldn't matter what reorganizations or what manuals we would, uh, we would issue. And then I started thinking I mean, along the same lines, if we have an, an understanding in business about the importance of corporate culture, well, why, why are we not at all talking about the importance of societal culture in the same way? And what is really the relationship between this inner development uh, and culture, corporate culture, society culture? And to what extent can our culture support the inner development? And what requirements do a culture actually put on us as individuals to be able to hold and replicate a certain culture. So there is um, a, a yeah, two-way relationship yeah. there between the culture that we are living or working in and our inner capacity to hold and replicate a more complex or a more deep culture. Yeah, and I want to just emphasize that although you're describing this as though it's a common thing in the business world, it's actually a very new idea in business and in the culture at large. In fact, one, one could say there's a kind of developmental blindness in our culture because the general mainstream idea, including in psychology until very recently, is that psychological maturation stops about the time the body stops maturing. And stops growing. Yeah. yeah. And to my mind, you're pointing to one of the most exciting findings in psychology in the last 50 years, that maturation, psychological growth can continue through multiple recognizable stages mm. in adulthood. Mm. So you're taking that idea and applying it first to the business world, and where we now have some evidence of, that that can be very successful. But now you're looking at this much bigger challenge we face yeah. uh, on a social and global level. Mm. And you point to this in your book, you know, our technology is now so powerful that our individual and collective immaturities and pathologies get multiplied and writ large across the face of the planet. And what we call our global problems are actually global symptoms, mm. symptoms mm. of our individual and collective immaturity and mm. pathology. Yes, we need to address the outer issues of ecological degradation and nuclear weapons, but what you're pointing to is that if we don't also foster inner development, we're in real trouble. Mm, absolutely. And, and also the inner development and connected to that is also our 
collective worldview and the root logic of our society and the root metaphors or whatever you would call this this very very basic layer of our culture that we in the west have more or less have the same worldview or, or the same deep logic since the enlightenment but that was the last time that we in the west really had a paradigm shift, shifted the way we looked upon ourselves, upon society and upon the world. And that fact that we went from a, let's call it a dogmatic religious worldview to a rational scientific worldview, I think that was exactly what humanity needed to do back then. And we should, of course, celebrate most of the things that have come out of that worldview, like modern medicine and human rights and democracy. We wouldn't want to get rid of that. But at the same time, as you say, I think that most of these crises that we see in the world today, environmental crisis, psychological health crisis, obesity crisis, crisis in democracy and all of that, I, I certainly believe that they are all just symptoms of some sort of underlying meta-crisis. And that meta-crisis, or part of that meta-crisis, is that this Enlightenment worldview has now reached uh, the end of its potential. Mm. And we need again go through a equally deep shift in worldview or paradigm or collective consciousness or whatever you want to call it. The connection with the inner world is, of course, that each of these steps that humanity has taken and we historically we shifted this worldview many times and in the historical overview in my, in my book I go through and give examples of many of those shifts but each time the worldview has become a little bit more complex and a little bit deeper and a little bit more difficult to hold and each step has actually demanded more and more of inner maturation of us as uh, humans. And I believe that if we collectively should be able to make the next step, a prerequisite for that step, is that we actually again take a step in our inner development as well. Not perhaps for everyone, not perhaps even a majority of the population, but at least some sort of critical mass needs to be able to hold that new worldview in a deep and authentic way. Yeah, so at least the cultural leading edge will open to a more expanded, better articulated, deeper, more sophisticated worldview that can better service at yeah. this time. Yeah. I want to step back because you're talking about worldviews, and I was really excited to see that that was a central feature of your book here. And yet, it's really our worldview is something that. It has an enormous implication on our lives and our culture yeah, and everything. Yeah. But it's something that is so much with us that we usually don't even recognize. No, so maybe it's, I can... it's like the water that fish swim in. Right. So the fish is probably the last one to notice the water. Right. And it's the same for us. And maybe it would help. I tend to think of our worldview as the some total of our presuppositional framework, the yeah. sum total of our foundational beliefs. And unfortunately, foundational beliefs and presuppositions are usually things we look through yeah. rather than look at. Yeah. At best, if part of the maturation process that you're talking about fostering consists of being able to step back, and you talk about this in the book, being able to step back and look at what we were formerly looking through, now look at it. So what was subject becomes object, to use your and Robert Keegan's language. But to, it's one thing to do that for a belief, but to do that for one's entire belief yeah. system, yeah. that's a truly dramatic yeah. transformation for individuals, or as you're pointing to, for a culture, and mm. perhaps now even a civilization. Mm -hmm. This is a big step, yeah. again, again. But as humanity, we have gone through these steps many times. Now it's time for us to do it again. And, and I think that 
if you if we look at culture as a complex evolving system, and, and that's a recurring theme in, in, in my book, it's really taking a, a systems or a process perspective and realize that many things and certainly all living things are these self-organizing, constantly developing systems. So if we look at culture as such a system, then we know even from physics that any complex system that is put under pressure eventually reaches a point where it has to reorganize. And sometimes that point is called the bifurcation point. And at that point, the system can either break down and fragment, or it can reorganize in a more complex and sometimes also more elegant way. And I think now that the Western civilization or even the global civilization is rapidly approaching such a bifurcation point where we will either see a breakdown of the system, a new, new dark age, uh, or, or even worse, mm-hmm, yes. or we will be able to take the step and uh, transition up on, to a more complex and elegant way of, of, of organizing. And exactly how that will look like, I think, is even theoretically impossible to say, because mm-hmm. again, with complex evolving systems, each of these steps is emergent, meaning that it has got properties that you cannot determine from the previous system. It's something completely new, fundamentally new that emerges. Just like, for example, life emerged from organic material. Life is nothing but organic material, but organized in a more complex way, and then that emerges as a new property that cannot really just be explained from organic chemistry. And the same way, our, at least that is my belief, that our consciousness is an, is an emergent property from uh, our neurological system. When that has reached through evolution a, a critical point, then what we perceive as consciousness uh, evolves. And as I look at your work, both organizational, institutional, and philosophical uh, in your writing, it's my sense is you're looking for the most strategic ways to help us through this bifurcation yeah, yeah. point and get past the very real risk of catastrophe yeah. and organize it, self-organize, you say, at another level. Um, I'd love to ask your ideas about how we best do that. Mm. You have your own approach. There are multiple approaches. But I'm also wondering if Perhaps since a part of this book and the central focus of your previous book, The Nordic Secret, was on the way in which Nordic countries had effectively transformed themselves, if we could start with that historical perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. You had three questions there. So perhaps let me unpack them <laughs> okay. unpack them one by one. First, I wanted to comment on the fact that we are, yes, reaching a bifurcation point and that there is a a very large risk of uh, a collapse, a system collapse. And we should, in, in that respect, remember that throughout history, most civilizations, when they have reached their bifurcation point, has actually collapsed. Mm. Yeah, even the Roman Empire, lasting for a thousand years, reached a point where it actually collapsed, imploded, imploded. And if but, I can just add, and it took humankind about a thousand years to yeah, get back. Get back. To, 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 get, to get back. And of course, the big difference today is that back then we had backup civilizations. So it wasn't the Roman civilization that was reborn, it was other civilizations taking, uh, taking over. But today we do not have any uh, backup. Civilization. So, so far in human history, this has been a more or less random trial and error process. And some civilizations have worked for a short period of time, some for longer, and then eventually they have collapsed. And then some other civilizations have perhaps later on thrived. Whereas now we have essentially one global civilization, and we certainly only have one global ecosystem. And and that is what we are gambling with at this point in time. So I don't think that we can afford to do this as trial and error. 
this time we need to be self-conscious about this process. And again, as this process is emergent, I do not think that we can plan this transition, but I hope that we can at least facilitate and help increase the odds for a positive outcome. And then, of course, the, the question comes, so then if we can't plan it, if we can't manage it, because you, living systems, self-organized systems are not manageable, what can we do? And, and my conclusion is that the best thing we can do is probably like any self-organizing system, when you take the step to the next level of organization, the best thing you can do to increase the likelihood of a step up in complexity rather than breakdown is to increase the ability for the components in the system to relate in a more deeper or more complex or more multifaceted way. And it is this ability to relate deeper that is the fundament for, for the emergence. So if we're talking now about the human uh, civilization, of course the components of the system here, that's us humans. So what we need to do is to develop our inner capacities to relate. And when I say relate, I mean both relate to ourselves, relate to other people, relate to society and, and relate to the world. Uh, Thomas, yeah. let me say something. When, when Roger said he'd arranged for you to come and speak with us here and have a conversation, and I found out that you were one of the, or the sponsor, the patron that led to the writing of the Listening Society by Hansi Freinach, I was very excited. Yeah, that, that might be a bit, bit, bit strong statement, but, uh, but um, certainly uh, Daniel Gertz, one of the co-authors, he stayed in my house in Switzerland for a year fasting, meditating, and writing, yes. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's been a, a very impactful book, and I've talked about it in my podcast, my writings, yeah. and my community, etc. Right now in the United States, we are going through extremely painful time. Uh, historically, the impeachment process with Donald Trump is going on, and we're very divided, and the survival of constitutional democracy as we know it right now is in question. I more recently lit, uh, moved because of taking care of family problems to a very conservative area in the United States and Louisiana. And I've been listening and, and talking to people and we're so divided and people don't, it's just maybe from your perspective, what could you tell us about where we are at now coming from a Scandinavian country? And John Paul II said that the Scandinavian countries are the closest thing to a just society, to a really ideal society right now. It's taking care of business. Freinach, Hansi Freinach talks about there's nothing wrong with welfare, it just hasn't gone deep enough. And in your writings, in your book, I notice you're talking about the individual development, mm. that the responsibility of government and the state is to foster development, maturation, taking care of the interiors and the exteriors of people mm. so we can become the happy, creative people mm. that we were born to possibly be. Mm. In these kind of times of crisis, and, and Europe is having its problems too, with the rise of reactionary right and push, push, pull, and and I live in London. We have Brexit. Yeah, Brexit. Exactly. What are the first steps? The first steps is your thinking, of course, and this emergence of meta modern or the emergence of of the political integral aspiration emergence. And I think you're a central character in that, from what I've seen, and that's very inspiring. But how do we begin? to move in that direction, and I, I, in Scandinavia you seem to be ahead of us, mm -hmm. I'm speaking as an American, in that process, but what do we do here, or is this, is having this conversation and beginning to talk about these things mm -hmm. the first step? Yeah, yeah. You're referring here to Scandinavia and, and to uh, the Scandinavian countries, and the, um, uh, that could be a good moment to also tie to your question there about the Nordic secret and, and what actually brought these Nordic countries to the position where we are today. So my co-author Lena Andersen, Danish author and philosopher and a dear friend and colleague of mine, we wrote the book The Nordic Secret a couple of years ago. And the starting point there was really us or me realizing that what I was trying to do with my uh, Swedish foundation, looking at 
the um, relationship between interpersonal growth and societal change, that that way of looking at our society and our world is actually nothing new in Scandinavia. That that connection between the inner world and the inner development and societal change has actually got deep, deep roots in all the Nordic societies. So what is that all about and how could it be that these, and we should remember of course that a hundred years, 150 years ago, all the Nordic countries were amongst the poorest, agrarian, non-democratic countries in Europe. In Sweden, at the end of the 1800s, up to 30% of the working population emigrated to the US. We had a million emigrants, emigrants of a, in a population of five million back then. And the reason people were emigrating was that they were starving and we were not a democracy. And then just a few generations later, even before the Second World War, we were amongst the happiest, richest, stable industrial democracies in the world. And we have remained so. We point out in the book that we think that we are now losing it a bit. We are losing it a bit. So I, I wouldn't say that today that the Scandinavian countries are ideal societies in, in each and every way. But I think that one could reasonably say, without exaggerating, that the way that all the Nordic countries manage the transition from pre-modernity into modernity, we did that in a better way and, and more peaceful way than anywhere else in the world. And the reason for that is that at the end of the 1800s, we had in all the Nordic countries very visionary intellectuals and politicians who knew that in times of rapid societal change, and of course they saw industrialization and urbanization and all of that coming, that in times of rapid societal change, it's just so natural for us humans to want to have an outside authority to hold on to, to rely on. And that might be a, a dogmatic religion or an authoritarian leader. But these politicians, they did not want to be authoritarian leaders. They were firmly committed to building democracy, and they knew that the only way to build stable democracies is to build them from bottom up. But then you need to help enough many citizens, people in society, to reach that level of inner maturity when you do no longer need to rely on an outside authority. When, when you have actually been able to find or internalize an inner compass and be enough grounded in yourself to be able to hold the complexity and chaos of societal transition. And you need a critical mass of those people in society if you're going to do this transformation from, from bottom up. So what they actually did then, back then, at the end of the 1800s, was that they established what I, sometimes jokingly, but it's fairly close to what actually happened, they established retreat centers all over Scandinavia. And at the turn of the century, 1900, there was actually a hundred such retreat centers in Denmark alone, 75 in Norway and 150 in Sweden, where young adults in their 20s, later on with full state subsidy, could spend up to six months in retreat with the expressed purpose of finding their inner compass, becoming inner direct, and using the language of contemporary developmental psychology, using the language of Professor Keegan, could say that the purpose was for them to start the process of moving from a socialized mind into a self-authoring mind, finding their own inner voice, becoming authors of their own lives. And when this program was at its height, almost exactly 100 years ago, then 10% of each young generation went to one of these half-year-long uh, retreats. 
And of course, that created a critical mass of conscious young change makers who could go out and be conscious co-creators of democracy. And there's so much in what you said and so much that's important. First, I just want to acknowledge what an astounding idea that the governmental support provided for 10% of the youth of the yeah. country to do this kind of deep inner work. And so very important, I'd just like to unpack a little of what you said. You pointed to the work of Robert Keegan, a very well-known developmental psychologist at Harvard, and want to unpack a little bit about the distinction between the two stages you pointed to, mm. because they're so crucial. You pointed the difference maturing from the socialized mind, of which about, I think, 40% of the population in the West is at, to the self-authoring mind, which is about, I think, something like 30%. And just what the distinction there is, because it's really a shift from a conventional approach to the world to a post-conventional, a conventional one in which, at the socialized mind, there is a simple acceptance, for the most part, of the cultural beliefs and myths and values, and they are largely unquestioned and just taken on and adopted as one's own and even defended to the point of young men have gone off for the centuries mouthing platitudes about how wonderful it is to die for one's country, etc. But the crucial distinction moving to post-conventional level and the self-authoring mind is that one begins to step back and question for oneself the value and validity of the culture's ideas and myths. And this enables, as you were pointing out, people to think more deeply, more critically, and really think for themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, this becomes, this is always good, but it becomes critical when you're going through a cultural transformation. Because if you are dependent on your culture, for your inner compass and your values and your beliefs, when the culture is starting to shift rapidly, you lose control. Oh, that's very good. I hadn't seen that. Yeah, I hadn't you, thought of that before, no, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You lose control and you become afraid. Yeah. And then you regress in consciousness and the reptilian brain kicks in and you... Yeah. So mm. the only way to actually be with comfort in a cultural shift is if you can, as you explained, take this outside look and see, oh, wow, now the culture is shifting, but I have my compass, so I can still sort of function in this shift, and I can actually myself be a co-creator of what wants to be born. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And that speaks to John's point about the current crisis we're in at the yeah. moment, both politically, culturally, and particularly the larger global crisis. And what you're pointing to, and I hadn't made this connection before, is that self-authoring stance enables us to be much less discombobulated, much less likely to regress as people yeah. do under stress, yeah. Yeah. and be much more effective change agents and catalysts for the kind of transformation we need at this yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, speaking about Robert Keegan's developmental theory, that self-authoring might not be enough to really be able to step outside the culture. I think yeah. self-authoring is enough for you to, to not lose control mm -hmm. and, and to still be able to function, but really taking a, a totally outside perspective of the culture and consciously create a new culture, really stepping out of the water, that that might need what Robert Keegan calls uh, self-transforming consciousness, yes. perhaps. Yes, so you're pointing to the very important fact that it's now clear, both from Robert Keegan's work and a number of other people's work, Ken Wilber, of course, Hansi Freinacht's books, etc., that there are multiple stages available to us. And we're really in a race, and I think this is one of the central points of your book, we're in a race between our individual and collective development and catastrophe. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, if we sh should be able to now consciously navigate and try to facilitate this cultural and societal transformation that we are mm -hmm. undoubtedly facing and seeing the start of right now. 
then we we need enough many people with a self-transforming consciousness that can see and take an outside perspective of culture and mm. guide that process and enough many people with a self-authoring mind that can comfortably take part in that process without freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> and we should, probably should say a little bit about the Robert Keegan's self-transforming mind because you introduced that concept but it's probably not familiar to a lot of people. And Keegan pointed to the fact that at this time a very small minority of the population not only is able to step back from immersion in the cultural belief system to look at it, but is able to then develop the capacity for looking at multiple perspectives and to integrate them mm. and a kind of perspectival fluidity in play. Mm. And that seems absolutely crucial at this time when we are the heirs of cross-cultural perspective, multiple perspectives from multiple cultures, multiple mm. traditions, multiple practices, philosophies, in a way we've never had to bridge and merge and make sense of before. So this capacity you're pointing to, this capacity for holding and integrating and even playing with multiple perspectives seems again one of the crucial issues and challenges of our yeah, time. Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, I should also want to point out that even though these developmental models, and perhaps Robert Keegan's in particular, play an important role in both my thinking and in my book, we should remember that, and I don't know who, who said this, but all models are wrong, <laughs> right. but some are useful. Right, yes. Yes. Now, so we, we shouldn't be too fixated with Keegan's models or Wilbur's models or a spiral dynamics or, or any model, but yes. it's good to, to know that we are on this developmental journey yes. and it can look very different in different people and every different persons and every developmental journey is individual, but mm -hmm. some patterns can be recognized and it's always good to know what to expect later in life and to yes. aspire to uh, yes. a, a development. And if we don't have that perspective, we don't know that we are on this developmental journey. And even perhaps more important, if, if our worldview does not contain an understanding for our inner development, then our societal culture will not consciously support such a development. And then now we are back to the Nordic secret. So what you could say is that what we did create in the Nordic countries a hundred years ago was a society that was recognizing this lifelong development and made conscious effort to support that development. And today, now again, going back to the corporate world, quite a few organizations start to realize that in this rapidly changing world, they need to empower all employees to take a much, much great responsibility for the totality of, of the business and be able to act independently and not just on the instructions from management. And to be able to do that, you need to have a greater amount of uh, inner capacity. And you could say that in order to not be dependent on, on a boss and being told what to do, but actually being able to navigate this more complex world on your own, you, you at least need to have reached the level of a self-authoring mind and to be able to work in that. So again, Professor Keegan is talking about corporations today fostering a, a, a creating a deliberately developmental organization, a DDO, a deliberately developmental organization. And you could say that the Nordic countries back then tried to be deliberately developmental societies. Yes, and, and one of the crucial needs for our for our time is clearly a deliberately developmental civilization. Yeah, yeah. Extending this through all cultures and peoples in a way that we've never heard, heard before. Could I just come back and then perhaps we, we can close the historical aspects here of the Nordic countries, but I should just point out that one could, of course, ask where did these uh, intellectuals and uh, 
politicians 150 years ago in the Scandinavian countries? Where did they get this understanding of uh, our mind's ability to evolve throughout life? And we, sh we should remember that back then, uh, German was the first foreign language in, in Scandinavia and also, was also the academic language. So all of these intellectuals and politicians actually read German and they read the German enlightened, sorry, the German um, idealistic philosophers in original and were very inspired by them. So that's philosophers like Schiller, Goethe, Herder, von Humboldt, Hegel. And these idealistic philosophers, they all reacted against the enlightenment philosophers view of our mind as a rational machine. The homo economicus, the blank slate of Locke or Descartes. And they said, no, our mind is not a rational ma machine. Our mind is an organic system. It's not just, the mind is not just located to the brain, but it, our mind is embodied in the totality of our bodies and embedded in language and in culture. And this is all interconnected and it's an evolving system. And this system can evolve throughout life and that, that evolution of mind can actually be supported. And they called this process of evolution of mind, they named that with the German word Bildung, which is not easily translated into English, but it's something like organic realization of something. So it's not just formation. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not education or enculturation, but it contains a, all of those things. But it's the organic realization of the potential of your mind and supporting that process that you can talk about, building. And one of the in intellectuals in Sweden back then, uh, a woman with the name Ellen Kay, she was one of our first feminists, by the way. She was also a, a big advocate for this in the development, and uh, she famously uh, wrote a book called What is Bildung? And she says in that book that Bildung is what remains with you when you have forgotten everything that you have learned. <laughs> so that clearly points to that, points at that it is not the content of your mind so building is not mm -hmm. just reading a lot of Shakespeare or Proust and be able to uh, quote uh, Shakespeare at dinner parties. No, but reading Shakespeare and Proust and other things might actually help you to expand your mind. Mm -hmm. But it mm -hmm. is the expansion of your mind and, and the capacity of your mind to hold more complexity, see more complex pattern, make meaning in a more complex way, but not just more complex, but also more nuanced. Mm -hmm. and more deep. And it's not just your mind, because our mind is em embodied, so it's also cultivation of feelings and sentiments and of your heart. So it's mm -hmm. both your mind and your heart. And the expansion of compassion, the expansion of, of what we in the Nordic Secret call the, the, our circles of belonging, yes. is important. But just as with the development of our cognitive capacities, that we cannot skip the, the steps, you cannot, you need to go through every step in your mm -hmm. development, so it's also with our compassion and empathy. We, we, we need to go through each stage, and we cannot just go from being egoistic individuals and then all of a sudden skip both family and, and local culture and then believe that we can expand that to a global reach because then it will be a very shallow and, and fragile mm -hmm. compassion. So then we are back to this local and global. So in, in building, it's, it's very much also a, an effort put on your local roots and your traditions and be grounded in the locality, but then also realize that you need to expand your, your, your compassion to, to the whole of humanity and to the whole of the planet. Mm. Thomas, I want, I want to let Doug stay, but I have to correct something so I can sleep tonight. Yeah. It wasn't John Paul II, it was Pope Francis. Was Pope Francis. Nice things about, yeah. about Scandinavia and looking to Scandinavia as a model of yeah. what a more just society yeah. uh, can look like. Yeah. And, and, and that did not happen by coincidence. Yes. We, we, we were not uh, 
created that way. That was a conscious effort that, yes. that took us there. I think that, and it's just that's the conclusion. Of... That was conscious effort to took that that took us that, and that made the possibility of this transition from pre-modern to modern. And I believe that we are now in a global situation where we need to again to make a conscious effort. And I don't think that we should use the the Nordic uh, example as as a template. What, what, what we did back then was 150 years ago. Now we have completely different, deeper understanding, modern development of psychology. We have technology and other things. So I don't think we should use it as a template, but we can certainly use it as a case study, mm -hmm. seeing thinking that a conscious effort on large-scale consciousness development actually worked, yeah. and it worked well. Yeah, a template and an inspiration. The inspiration, the yeah, yeah. This has been done. Done, exactly. Uh, exactly. Is amazing. I mean, you know, until I read your books, I had no idea yeah. that this had been done on such an extraordinary society-wide scale. Yeah, but but it, this is actually also a secret to us in, in the in oh. the Nordic countries, and this is a, an interesting um, twist. And that, that is that we have forgotten about this. Uh, and, and it is not even well recognized in, in our contemporary uh, history books. And why mm. is that? Well, it is because we, we change worldview again. Mm. So these, um, again, intellectuals and politicians that were, were implementing these systems for consciousness development 100 years ago in Scandinavia, they had the view the German idealistic view of the mind as a developing system. After the Second World War, we stopped reading the German philosophers. Mm. And we turned to the Anglo-Saxon world for inspiration. We turned to Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard. And of course, in that philosophy department, they were still in the Enlightenment mode. But that was still Locke and Descartes. <laughs> so then we turned back to that mm. way of seeing the world, very rationalistic and positivistic and only what could be measured, count, counted, and any inner world, uh, subjective world, that was very, uh, yeah. So then we reverted back to an enlightenment, uh, simplified view of our mind as a rational machine, the homo economicus. Mm. And with that worldview, you don't understand what was, what's going on. So today in Scandinavia, mostly all of us believe that these centers that were called folk high schools, by the way, called folk high schools, that they were actually just adult educational centers. Mm -hmm. You went there for, to, 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 mm -hmm. to learn things. But this consciousness development, that was not just part of it, it was the core. With the present worldview, you don't understand what that is. Oh. It, doesn't, it doesn't even make sense. What oh, they did. Yes, yes. It doesn't even make sense. Wow. So that is again how important these shifts in worldview are, and mm. that I believe that in the present shift we we need again to shift the worldview and uh, and yeah move on. We we need to again using Wilbur's language, we need to include and transcend. We shouldn't mm. forget about mm. the Enlightenment worldview. We we should include that. On all Absolutely those things, yes. But we yes. should include it and transcend it. Yes yes. As you're pointing out with building an organic growth beyond or fostering greater potentials and, yeah. and uh, developmental stages. And, and I don't know if you want to jump in, Doug, but... Uh, back towards the beginning of our discussion, you mentioned relationship as a key to this, relationships with others, relationships with ourselves, and depths of relationships okay. specifically as a key to the growth and transformation that's going to pull us as a world culture out of some of the problems and difficulties that we're facing. You then went on to talk about the growth into self-authoring mind and the way Nordic countries at the turn of the 19th century had provided a way for people to do that and how important that growth was. I wanted to clarify what you mean by depth of relationship, both in others and with oneself. What constitutes depth? I speculate that it has something to do with this idea of transcend and include the ability of taking on multiple perspectives, mm -hmm. of seeing from outside what was once subject becomes mm -hmm. object, mm -hmm. and ask if that is what you meant by 
depth of relationship and if that's the key to it. And then beyond, expand that into the idea that we were just talking about of systems and complex systems. In emergence, complexity is all about the relationship between parts. I wanted to try and tie those together and again, get your thoughts on a speculation that what has happened in the movement away from some of the leadership and positive growth of Nordic countries in the developmental world in recent times has to do with a return to a more isolated perspective, the cutting off of some of these relationships as technological changes have pulled us apart from our capacity to form deep relationships with one another as we are more and more isolated by the tools that were supposed to bring us together. Mm-hmm. I think one way to, to answer or comment on your, your question there might be to exemplify this with deep ability to relate deeper, tying this back to where we also started with corporate culture and societal culture and the need to focus on creating the good societal culture. And today we live in a multicultural world. So when I say the good society, I don't mean, I'm not so naive that I think that we can create or should create a monoculture in society. And I'm not just saying that to be politically correct. <laughs> and I don't say it just because I think that, oh, now we live in a multicultural world, so now we need to, do, to take that into account as well. I actually truly believe that in a more complex world, to understand a more complex world, more perspectives are necessary. And that every perspective on the world actually adds something. We shouldn't get stuck in, in the postmodern fallacy that every perspective is always equally valid. But, but I think one could go as far as saying that in any situation, one more perspective adds something. And that the world is now so complex that if we try to look at the world with just one eye, we get a very flat. Yeah. So that's why we have two eyes. I mean, just that little difference in perspective gave us depth. And if we would have an eye here, we would see even more of the world. So I, I think that the future culture, societal culture, will be a multicultural. But it's equally um, naive to believe that the good multicultural society will just happen if we threw a lot of different cultures into the pot and just watch it. Because then there is a big likelihood that instead of enriching each other, They try to kill each other. So I believe that the good multicultural society needs a holding frame, needs some sort of capacity to hold that. And you could call that a metaculture or or something. So creating a good multicultural society needs to be a conscious effort from our side. And if we do not even realize the importance of societal culture, And if we can't take this, as you said before, this outside view of our own culture and others' cultures, then we will never be able to do that. And now that ties to this sort of deeper relating. So if you and I speak the same language, watch the same television programs, read the same newspapers, as we did in most countries in the 60s or in the 70s, Of course, that, that demands less of inner capacity to relate compared to a situation where you speak a different language, you might have a different religion, you might be consuming different media, you might even have a slightly different worldview. In order for us to relate deeply in that situation, that demands a lot, lot more of inner capacity. And This is perhaps oversimplifying things, but certainly through this ego-developmental process that we have been referring to, some of these capacities needed for this deeper way of relating is developed. So that's how I see that this inner development, the deeper relationship, and the multicultural society all ties together. And again, I should stress again that, that the multicultural society is not just something that we need to accept. I think we should embrace it. 
But the only way to have to have that functioning is that we can really see what we are doing and be able to hold that process. And again, that holding requires many people. So, so first of all, we, we, we need to have both academics and politicians and journalists who can see this mm-hmm. and articulate this and provide resources and scaffolding for this because it is a societal issue to scaffold this process. But then it also demands, even with strong scaffolding, it also demands a great lot more from us as individuals. So it, so it also demands an increase in, in, uh, in holding capacity. And again, I think this, this is also very important to, to point out that when you have this developmental view, then you realize that we all need to go through every step of this development. And then we cannot look down upon those that have not come equally far as perhaps we ourselves have done. And we can certainly not just sort of push them away and, and call them the deplorables. Right. No, that, that, that is not helpful. So we should embrace everyone in our society, recognize everyone where you are on your life journey, meet everyone where they are, and then help to grow together. And it is to grow together. It's not sort of us helping them to grow. It's realizing that this journey never ends. And that actually in helping other grow, you might grow yourself in the process. And I want to just acknowledge and emphasize something you said, that multiculturalism takes takes a lot to make it work. And that's so important because at least in this country, there's in certain circles, there's a belief, a politically correct belief that multiculturalism is good, full stop, uh, without any appreciation that, well, sometimes it's good, and if it's not handled well, it can be really problematic. So this is a real, real task. And the other thing I want to just draw out is is the idea of the recognition that all our interactions and relationships can foster our collective development, but that requires the recognition of the possibility of development. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps one answer to John's question is where you know where do we start in terms of the kind of build on sort of civilizational growth or deliberately developmental civilization or fostering individual societies is first one of the key things needs to be getting some of these ideas out. Yeah, yeah. And that actually requires a bit of changing of worldview because these ideas are not understandable if we do not change our understanding of our mind and stop looking upon ourselves as uh, these homo economicus. But the problem there is that this fundamentally enlightenment view of our mind is so deeply, in some sense, so deeply penetrated all institutions and everything that uh, changing this will be will be painful, because of course, in in some way, both the market and democracy. They are both underpinned by this notion of us as rational individuals making rational choices and knowing what is best for our ourselves, both in the short term and in the long term, and taking into account future generations and the planet and everything in our rational decisions. And then we come up with a rational decision as com- consumers in the market or as voters in, in democracy. And of course, now we know that that is not the case. I mean, that's why marketing works, and that is why politics is falling apart, okay? because we are not that. But, but actually acknowledging that to ourselves, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that these yeah. institutions are, are, are built on the wrong assumptions, and then starting to think about uh, what to do about that, that that's a big step. Indeed. That's a big step, yeah. and painful. Yeah. And as I look at your work, it seems like your mission that you've taken on is this kind of worldview transformation. The recognition and the ideas. You I, are- I think the two. Yeah. So, so it's it's collectively, it is a shift in worldview, mm-hmm. because the worldview is a collective construct, the, the, per definition. 
because we, we, we couldn't even communicate, we couldn't even be living together if we didn't agree on some sort of fundaments. So the, the, the worldview is collective. So if we are going to change the worldview, it will have to be a collective movement that change. So that's on one level, that's a collective aspect. But then on the individual aspect, that's the individual maturation and and development. So I think that we need to do both of those things. We need to mm. consciously expand our worldview and update that to a more relevant, I wouldn't say more true, or a more helpful, perhaps. Uh, more helpful, yeah. yeah. The, the worldview that, that we now as humanity need. Yeah. So we, we, we need to have a more helpful worldview and we need to work on our own uh, personal inner maturation mm. so that we actually can hold both more complex relationships and relating, but also hold this new worldview that will be more complex, that will demand more from us. Yes. And a few moments ago, as I said, perhaps one answered John's question about where do we start is we offer the idea of possibility of development, but another answer comes to me from uh, Aldous Huxley's book, Ireland, where the the person comes to this, visits the utopia and asks, well, how did you create this? Where do you start? And they, the answer is, they, they give is, we start everywhere at once. Yeah. And so that it feels like we are dealing with such complex situations in a society, a culture, a globe of such enormous, incomprehensible complexity, maturing hopefully to more complexity, that none of us has... Each of us has just a little piece of the puzzle, perhaps, and our task is, uh, for all of us, is looking at what's the most strategic contribution mm. I can make. Mm. That's uh, absolutely. So this is this is a truly co-creative process that, that we need to go in. So it's really we who create this world and the future, whether we are aware of it ourselves. And, and how do we make this developmental paradigm, if you will, more attractive? And, and Ken, one time, was in a conversation on the phone with several people, and somebody asked him, well, isn't all this higher development, blah, blah, isn't this elitist? And Ken said, well, it is, but it's an elitism to which everyone is invited. Absolutely. So, and, and, and again, going back then to the development in the Nordic countries, that, that was certainly, the, the Volksbildung in the Nordic countries, that was certainly not elitist, and I think that that is why it was successful because it was truly a bottom-up process and certainly there, there was an, an understanding of the need of creating a developmentally supportive society from the very top political levels. But then the system that was set up was a system where this was very much a grassroots movement and it was these centers were administrated and the programs were very different and administrated by many different organizations, some political organizations, some worker union organizations, some uh, non-drinking organizations, some religious organizations. And the participants were total majority of the participants came from working class or farming background. And I think that, that that is why such a relatively small amount of, as 10% actually created a tipping point because these 10% were everywhere in society. They were not just up in an elite or, or here. They, they were everywhere. Tomas, is that beginning to, to come back in Scandinavian countries, the idea of these building no. centers? It's, no. Wow. no. 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 We, we are completely now, um, since many years, very... Uh, good positivists and uh, enlightenment thinkers. And we believe strongly in, in homo economicus and the importance of focusing on what can easily be measured. So no, no we, we, lo we lost this and we, and we haven't come back to it yet. And we can also see that, uh, and I, I'm not saying that there is a causality here be between this, but we, we are certainly also starting to lose it a little bit in the, in the, in the Nordic countries and the effects of this building program lasted for a, for one or two generations also mm -hmm. because if you have more conscious parents they will raise children but the, but if this was lost in the 50s 60s or definitely in the 70s then we not I think we see the effects of us not well starting to take this 
consciousness for granted, mm. you know, not remembering where it came from, this collective uh, race of consciousness. Yeah. And I'm wondering, given that, that we have an example and an inspiration of something that worked, is there a comparable process or inspiration or model going on at the, in our current time? What occurs to me is, is that we have now, for the first time in history, the emergence and popularization of contemplative practices, mm -hmm. which are one of the very few ways we know of fostering development and inducing valuable states of consciousness as mm -hmm. well. So in this country alone, we have some 7 million people doing yoga practices and some 5 million people doing meditation. Now, admittedly, most of it is watered down, but still, these are transformational practices which have a lot of research demonstrates their growth potential. So, so absolutely, something absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we shouldn't just underestimate the, the importance of these trends. Just two comments on those trends. One, one is that a big difference is that most people do these these yoga or meditation from an individualistic perspective. I do it because uh, that makes me uh, more relaxed or more capable and I can perform better or I'm happier. Whereas the building effort in the Scandinavian countries, that was personal development for the development of society. That link oh, was at the purpose was very good that you will function better and get a good work and be a good manager and all of that. That's very good, but that's not the reason why we put an emphasis on your, on your personal development. It is because society needs that. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.